Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who are joining us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. For those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And, of course, we will post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. We are pleased today that this program is co-hosted by our friends at the Claremont Institute Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence and the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. Moderating today will be Professor Hadley Arcus. Professor Arcus has been a member of the Amherst College faculty since 1966, since 1987, he has been the Edward Ney Professor of Jurisprudence. He assumed emeritus status in 2016. He is the author of seven books, the most recent being Constitutional Illusions and Anchoring Truths, the Touchstone of the Natural Law. His articles have appeared in numerous professional journals. He is known to a wider audience by his writings in the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, and National Review. At Amherst, he founded the Committee for the American Founding, the goals of which have been carried on now in his new organization, the James Wilson Institute, here in Washington, D.C. Please join me in welcoming our good friend, Hadley Arcus. Thanks, John. Thanks for coming. So we have the Claremont Institute joined by our James Wilson Institute, and thanks to our friends at Heritage for offering this familiar and beckoning hall and the amenities. I'm going to take eight and a half minutes to offer an introduction, and then I'll recede and, and uh, introduce the, this formidable panel. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, George Sutherland, the former senator from Utah, was returning from Europe where he was negotiating for his country on claims of arbitration. When he arrived back at his apartment in Washington, he had a letter from President Harding saying, I assume you know that while you were away, a vacancy arose in the Supreme Court. I put your name up that day, and you were confirmed. That One day. That was 1922. Now, since then, as you may have noticed, things have become a bit more contentious. The real turning point of the break came in 1987 with the poisonous hearings over Bob Bork. It's curious that Joe Biden has not been more celebrated these days. For the defeat of Bork was the gift of Joe Biden and Ted Kennedy, the gift that never stops giving. For without the defeat of Bork, we would not have had Anthony Kennedy. Without Kennedy, we would not have had Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where Kennedy led the defection of three Republican nominees. 
to preserve Roe versus Wade when it looked as though that decision might be overturned. Without Kennedy, there wouldn't have been Lawrence versus Texas and Obergefell versus Hodges installing same-sex marriage and working a revolution in the laws on marriage and adoption and many other things as the ripples extend outward to reach bakers and florists and people in ordinary trades. Justice Kennedy was unwilling to overturn the right to abortion, but in 2007, he joined his conservative colleagues in sustaining the federal bill that barred that grisly procedure known as partial birth abortion. Now, with that decision, and with Kennedy on board, the court was announcing, in effect, that they're in business to start receiving those laws emanating from the states, casting more protections on life in the womb. They could be laws requiring women to view the ultrasound images of the child they were carrying, or they could be laws that barred abortions when a beating heart could be detected. All of these issues may come more readily now to a court containing at least five members more predictably willing to sustain them. That may have even more advantages than a move instantly to overrule Roe versus Wade. The experience of the Boer Boer hearings imparted a lasting defensiveness and timidity to the Republican nominees. The Republican playbook for the nominees, just keep your head down, don't provoke an argument, and now don't scare the horses and don't scare Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. The Democrats have been emphatic and insistent that their nominees have the right position on abortion, while President Trump even now felt obliged to say that he never asks the nominee about abortion or apply gasp a litmus test. But his campaign was a virtual litmus test, for he was declaring to pro-lifers throughout the land that he was looking for justices like Scalia, who respected life. Get what I mean? President Trump declared when he nominated Brett Kavanaugh that just behind decisions on war and peace The naming of justices to the Supreme Court is the most consequential decision a president could make. But of course, that should be quite wrong in our constitutional scheme of things. And it marks a diminution of the presidency. It it marks a situation where, as David Forte says, the president is reduced to the position of the prime elector. He will nominate those men and women serving for life who truly will govern us. At the same time, at the same time, the Democrats have become the party of the courts. They've depended on the judges to put across the parts of the liberal agenda that they are too afraid to campaign on in public, as with same-sex marriage, which was opposed by the Clintons and by Barack Obama until the courts came to the threshold of putting it across. Now, some of us think that the materials are in hand now. With the gentlest of moves, the Republican senators could make the Democrats lose their appetite for flogging this issue of abortion, and perhaps more on that later. In the meantime, it's these issues of this kind, of sexual liberation, of abortion, that fuel the rage behind the demonstrations we are seeing in the streets, not the concern for the separation of powers and the EPA, the administrative state, not the rule of law or of unelected judges reviewing decisions made on the battlefield. Over the last 60 years, the court has broken through the prudential barriers that used to cast up warnings to judges that they were entering a political domain where the standards of judging were not really contained in that kit 
carried by judges. And so the court itself became the prime engine changing the moral and political culture, most strikingly by unfolding an ethic of sexual liberation with the key decisions on pornography, contraception, abortion, gay rights, same-sex marriage. The string began with the trumpeting of privacy, but as the ethic unfolds, we now find legislatures willing to bar parents in the privacy of the family from seeking counsel for their teenagers who find a passion to change their sex. When these laws are challenged, as they will be, and they land on the docket of a federal court, can anyone doubt that we've undergone a sea change now with a radically transformed sense of what has become now the business of the federal government? And to talk about this revolution in the laws without mentioning Justice Kennedy is, as the old line used to go, it's rather like playing Hamlet without the first gravedigger. Well, but do, the, do these hearings, do these hearings offer us the possibilities of serious conversation on these issues? During the hearings over Bob Bork, I was driving back and forth from Amherst to Washington, delivering papers and books. I remembered parts of those. I was listening to them all day in the radio. I remember parts of those hearings that Bob had forgotten. In one moment, there was a mention of Shelley versus Kramer, uh, that case on racial covenants in housing back in 1948. And the reasoning of the case by Vincent was so was very murky. Phil Curland used to refer to this as the Finnegan's Wake of American constitutional law, uh, as with uh, James Joyce's incomprehensible novel. Bob said to Joe Biden, we don't need Shelley versus Kramer anymore. We've got Runyon versus McCrary, which I argued when I was Solicitor General in 1975. That case involved racial discrimination in a private secondary school. This was a test of the 13th Amendment being revived at the time, which could, the 13th Amendment, which could apply directly to individuals and private entities, did not depend on state action or the 14th Amendment. And Joe Biden asked Bob, Judge, did that statute antecede Shelley versus Kramer? Yeah, it was the the old civil rights statute of 1866. And I said, my gosh, Bob, if you didn't know that, he didn't know about the attempt to revive the 13th Amendment in the 70s. He didn't know why the 14th Amendment didn't work. He couldn't have understood about a third of the questions he was asking you. It was evident that he couldn't understand a third of the questions. Well, we learned early on that we could not treat these hearings seriously as seminars or real lessons. For we didn't have students attentive or prepared for the seminar. Okay. But in the meantime, the Republican senators and their staffers would help offer the kinds of questions that give our nominee the chance to show his impressive command of the law and show also the way his mind turns over. But we're sure now that we have some strikingly different perspectives in conflict over the meaning of the Constitution. Those differences run down to differences about the regime itself, its premises, its anchoring principles, the rightful distribution of power, public and private, and the very ends, or the purposes of the law. But I'd like to plant this question for my friends in the panel, which they make a, take a shot at or not as they're moved. If we think that these key differences or understandings of the Constitution may become engaged in these hearings, just wondering what, 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 what are two cases might spring to mind that you think uh, would be critical in marking that disagreement 
And what do you, do you think any of them may become the subjects of a conversation in these hearings? And with that, I want to introduce this distinguished panel that we're lucky to assemble for this occasion. First, my, the, my dear friend, the great, formidable, unsinkable John Eastman, who's the founding director of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Claremont Institute. He's also the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service at Chapman School of, of Law, and he had been former dean over there. He's on, he did his PhD in political philosophy at Claremont and went on to take his degree in law from my place, University of Chicago. He then launched into a golden train of clerkships, first with Mike Ludig and the Fourth Circuit, then Justice Thomas and the Supreme Court. He's been in the forefront of all the battles on the cases that really come to the core. He did fine briefs on the cases that came out the right way. This, this last season, briefs on Masterpiece Baker and coerced speech. He also helped Clarence Thomas craft Thomas's most important opinion on originalism and the Commerce Clause and the, and the, uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause. And, and as though he didn't, he wasn't enough target of enough many things. He was agreed to take, had the guts to take on the presidency of the National Organization of Marriage. Right. Tom Jipping, my pal, going back many years, I said in Hebrew legends, Tom would count as one of those thirty-six men who prop up the world. Uh, he's he's a stalwart. Tom uh, took his law degree from the State University of New York at Buffalo. He was a founding member of the Buffalo Federalist Society. He clerked for William Hutchinson on the Third Circuit. He worked for 15 years for Orrin Hatch as his chief counsel on the Judiciary Committee and senior counsel for nominations. I knew Tom at the Heritage Foundation when we were working on the support for Clarence Thomas, but he, he goes back like, he said this is the 11th nomination he's working on going back to, to Nino Scalia in 1986. I'm glad to see Tom, Tom back home at Heritage now. I wish he was still there at the Judiciary Committee. He, but he's been a stalwart and uh, few among us have seen as many nominations as Tom has. Mike McGinley went to Notre Dame, and yet he remains Catholic. <laughs> he went on to Harvard Law School, and when he came out of law school, he landed a clerkship of the Tenth Circuit with that judge, Neil Corsage in the Tenth Circuit. There he worked, went to a clerkship with our friends Justice Alito, with the new Trump administration, he would serve as associate counsel, special assistant to the president in the White House Counsel's Office. His primary responsibilities included a review of major legislative and regulatory actions and the confirmation of judicial nominees. And what this meant was that he was the person who went door to door with Justice Gorsuch as he made his rounds in the Senate, working with the judge, preparing for the hearings, taking notes. He's now already a partner at Deckard LLP in Philadelphia, where he's a litigator, working on a range of issues, federal jurisdiction, Chevron deference, just about virtually everything that matters in our constitutional law. He hasn't seen as many hearings as Tom, but he has seen a critical nomination up close, intensely, as few of us have had the chance to see it. I'm really grateful to Mike for making the trek in from Philadelphia. So, but now we'll be open. Would you help me in, in welcoming John Eastman?
Thanks so much, Hadley. The indefatigable, unsinkable Molly Brown, I think, is what my new, my new uh, introduction will be after that. Um, and thanks to Heritage for hosting us. It's always a pleasure to be back here. Um, you know, the, the, the topic, the title we picked was this uh, version of two constitutions. And I want to talk a little bit at a 40,000-foot level about the fork in the road that we've come to as a result of the last election um, with a different result than I think many people in this town in particular expected. And the fork in the road as it plays out in the Supreme Court is now going to be the centerpiece of these confirmation hearings. Are we going to have a constitution that means what it says and must be interpreted faithfully to continue to comply with the original meaning, public meaning of that document. That's the source of authority for judges to have judicial review in the first place. Or we are, are we going to have a living constitution where the, the, the document itself can be molded and shaped to meet what the judges believe is kind of the modern exigencies of the day? Um, those two visions of constitutional law and the role of the courts are fundamentally incompatible. And so the last election, by President Trump putting together a list of people that he said adhere to the former and reject the latter role of the judge in constitutional interpretation, presented the American people with that distinct choice on which of the two paths we were going to go down. And in his first nomination and confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, he indicated that he was committed to pursuing that path. Uh, and the question now before us will be whether the new nominee is, is as committed as well. I think he is. Now, I'm often accused when I say you've got one side of this battle that tries to adhere to the Constitution and the other side that rejects it and does what they want, that I'm just angry than when I lose cases. And it's just, you know, if I win a case, they stuck with the Constitution. If I lose a case, they were acting unconstitutionally. Um, and I beg to differ with that. And I, as, as, as evidence here, I want to give a couple of the, the lions of the living Constitution view, recently deceased, both of them, um, uh, who kind of took a different tack. They didn't say that we just disagree on what the Constitution means and we're both faithfully trying to adhere to it in our own view. They said that the Constitution wasn't binding on them. Judge Harry Pragerson famously um, in, uh, in confirmation hearings uh, was asked by Senator Simpson. This is back in the Carter administration. Um, uh, he was asked um, uh, if the Constitution was clear and it disagreed with your own view of what ought to be done, your own conscience, which way would you rule from the bench to uphold the Constitution or to follow your conscience? And he said unabashedly, I would follow my conscience. I would try and find some clever way to distinguish the old cases or the Constitution, but I would follow my conscience no matter what the Constitution said. Senator Simpson came back. Maybe my, my question wasn't particularly clear. <laughs> if the Constitution was clear, he said, oh, I, I heard you, Senator. I would follow my conscience. Now, Pragerson under oath, said that. It was an oath that, when he said that, that said, I'm going to violate the oath of office once I take the bench. I'm not going to vote to uphold the Constitution from my role of the bench. What was stunning is after such a bald statement, he was confirmed almost unanimously in the United States Senate. His colleague on the Ninth Circuit, also from those days, who just passed away recently, Stephen Reinhardt, um, manifested a similar rejection of not only the Constitution, but the superior court that was supposed to define the limits of his own authority as an inferior court judge. 
And he repeatedly said in print and in public, in fact, Linda Greenhouse in her eulogy of him that was published after he died this past year, noted um, uh, that a student had asked him if the point, uh, why he issues decisions that when they know they're going to get overturned by the Supreme Court because he's issuing things that violate the precedent of the Supreme Court. Judge Reinhardt, she says, took it with a smile. They can't catch them all. Now, she was surprised by that, but that was a rather stock answer to his question on why he so routinely flouted governing precedent of the Superior Court. Um, she said, it startled me. The judge's tone may have been mild, quote, but his stance was one of open resistance, defiance even, toward a Supreme Court. Um, that in our hierarchical system, their interpretation of the Constitution is supposed to be binding on the lower courts. He saw it no more binding on him than the Constitution itself. So I reject the notion that these are just different views of constitutional interpretation. One says the Constitution is binding, the other says it does, it's not. It might be useful as a takeoff point to achieve certain ends, um, but it is not the, the end of the story. It's only the beginning of the judicial role. Um, now, bad enough when the courts were fairly limited, but we've developed a notion over the last number of years that constitutional supremacy is no longer the thing. Rather, the judicial interpretation of the Constitution is. In fact, back in the 1970s, You'll find some of the constitutional law textbooks didn't even bother to have a copy of the Constitution in them anymore. It had become irrelevant. What was relevant was the last thing the Supreme Court said about it. Um, we have all heard the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, but, but there's that old Chief Justice, uh, Charles Evans Hughes, famously said, we are under a Constitution. Ah, but the Constitution is whatever the judges say it is. Right? This supplanted the old humility of the judges recognizing that when we strike down an act of the legislature or enjoin an act of the executive, we're not claiming a supremacy to either of those co-equal branches. We are instead recognizing the supremacy of the Constitution itself. But if the Constitution itself is not so supreme, only whatever the judges say about it is supreme, then we have substituted constitutional supremacy and legitimacy for judicial supremacy and illegitimacy. And I, I, I pose this question. That, it seems to me, is what's at stake in the current confirmation hearings. So why have already the left um, uh, gotten so obsessed and, and so exercised over Judge Kavanaugh? Well, there are a couple of things that I think in his record that are rather telling. Um, uh, in Garza versus uh, uh, Hagen, for example, this was the uh, decision involving the, um, uh, the detained illegal immigrant girl who wanted to get an abortion and wanted the government itself to facilitate that abortion. Now, there's no Supreme Court precedent or otherwise saying that's part of the constitutional right that the court manufactured back in Roe and reaffirmed, at least in part, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So, Judge Kavanaugh's rejection of that claim and his dissenting opinion there amounts to a claim that he's not going to lend his voice to expand a constitutional right that hadn't existed in the first place. This was not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be ever progressing in creating new rights and expanding them. Um, uh, now, if one looks, though, instead at his um, related case in priest versus life for versus Department of uh, Health and Human Services, 
his dissent from en banc denial of, of review by that court, um, uh, he said something was rather intriguing, and you'd think the left would enjoy this. He said that the Hobby Lobby decision by the Supreme Court strongly suggests that the government has a compelling interest in providing free access to contraceptive care. This is the issue that's created the foundation for uh, the right to an abortion in the first place. This, this, you know, would have, you one would think would have, would have pleased them. But, but he then said, well, but that's, uh, that's just, uh, the compelling interest. The second part of the test is whether the government could accomplish that interest by narrow means and saying they could, rejected the claim. And see, that too is anathema to the left enterprise. It doesn't matter what the legal reasoning is. If you don't come to the outcome we want, you are not with us and therefore must be opposed. But in both of these cases, what we find in Judge Kavanaugh is contrary to Judge Stephen Reinhardt, a faithful adherence to Supreme Court precedent, which as a lower court judge was binding on him. The same kind of faithful adherence to constitutional requirements uh, that he has manifested in most of his opinions on the D.C. Circuit since he's been a judge. And that's something I think that is what creates the problem for them. We don't want a judge who's going to faithfully adhere to the law. We want a judge that's going to move the law in the direction we want. Now, that's not always the direction of expanding rights um, because they're equally angry with him when he doesn't restrict rights that they want restricted. His decision in Heller versus the District of Columbia, for example, again, writing in dissent, where he said semi-automatic rifles are also protected by the Second Amendment. Now, you're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to restrict that body of rights down to nothingness. Um, uh, First Amendment rights, United States Telecom versus Federal Communications Commission, he said net neutrality rules violate the First Amendment rights of private uh, Internet servers on the Internet. Again, First Amendment, we got to restrict that because we don't like that right there. Second Amendment rights, we got to restrict. So it's not always expansion of rights. It's restriction as well. Um, now, I think what really troubles them most beyond the issues that Hadley raised is his willingness to confront the administrative state that has grown up over the last 80 years completely unmoored from any constitutional authority and in direct violation of basic core separation of powers principles. Um, He's done that in a number of cases, and I think his his willingness to confront the non-delegation doctrine, to say that Congress has to give authority to an executive agency before they can act with lawmaking power rather than mere executive or enforcement power. What a stunning revelation that we find. But it's right there in Article 1, Section 1, Clause 1 of the Constitution, in case anybody thought it was buried deeply in there. The lawmaking power is vested in Congress. Um, So these are the kind of things that I think, at bottom, really trouble them. Because at bottom, what it means is that the the 80-year-old New Deal enterprise, which required a rejection of basic core constitutional principles, might itself be at stake by this turn in the road. Here's what Rex Tugwell, one of the principal architects of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, admitted. To the extent that these New Deal policies developed, they were tortured interpretations of the document intended to prevent them. So we have to rewrite that document in order to accomplish the modern progressive agenda. Brett Kavanaugh, in his time on the bench for the D.C. Circuit, the court in the land most 
familiar with these administrative law doctrines has expressed a willingness to confront how those doctrines, that barnacle of an administrative state that has grown up in the intervening three quarters of a century, are so contrary to the basic principles of separation of powers and therefore contrary to the notion that we ourselves get to decide the direction of our policy rather than unelected folks who are not accountable to us. I think at bottom, that's his, the deeper threat he poses to the left. They won't talk about it in those terms, um, but that's the fork in the road we're at right now, and it's going to be very interesting to watch over the next couple of months how that plays out. Thanks so much. Uh, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Virginia Slim's cigarette ad that had the slogan, you've come a long way, baby. Uh, the same can be said, though not in a good way, about Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Um, over the last 30 years, the confirmation process for a Supreme Court nomination has occupied an average of 72 days from nomination to final confirmation vote, and it has a number of different parts. While the hearing takes up only a few of those days, uh, its near-mythical status makes it appear like the heart and soul of the confirmation process itself. Uh, it was not always so. The Senate Judiciary Committee held its first hearing on the Supreme Court nomination in 1916, although the nominee, Louis Brandeis, did not appear. That happened seven more times, and the committee held no hearing at all for another dozen Supreme Court nominees who were later confirmed. And then there was William O. Douglas, nominated by President Franklin Roosevelt, who attended his hearing but said nothing. There really wasn't time. The hearing, if you can call it that, lasted for five minutes before the Judiciary Committee went into executive session and quickly approved the nomination. In 1962, the Senate confirmed the nomination of Byron White by voice vote only a few hours after a brief hearing that the New York Times described as an admiration session. As recently as 1986, the hearing for Supreme, and I, that's when I was working for then-Judge Antonin Scalia while I was in law school that, that summer when he went to the Supreme Court. As recently as 1986, the hearing for Scalia lasted just 16 hours over two days. Nearly one-third of the record for the first day, which is when Scalia appeared before the committee, is occupied by introductions and statements by senators. Having seen that up close, I can tell you it's no prettier the closer you get. Reference was made to Scalia's Italian heritage so often that when it was his turn, Senator Howell Heflin said, and this is only a reasonable uh, impersonation. Judge Scalia, I believe that almost every senator that has an Italian-American connection has come forward to welcome you. I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that my great-great-grandfather married a widow who was married first to an Italian-American. <laughs> <laughs> to which Judge Scalia responded, Senator, I have been to Alabama several times too. <laughs> Scalia was unanimously confirmed in 1986, even though he refused to discuss the 1803 decision in Marbury versus Madison. One year later, however, the hearing for nominee Robert Bork lasted 93 hours over 12 days, with the nominee before the committee for 31 of those hours. 
In the end, the Senate defeated the Bork nomination by a vote of 58 to 42. The tectonic plates of the confirmation process had shifted. And they've not shifted back. Within hours of President Trump's announcement of the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Kavanaugh on July 9, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said he would demand that Judge Kavanaugh provide affirmative commitments on a range of issues that will come before the Supreme Court. Now, the best way to understand all of this is to know that the conflict over the appointment of judges is really the conflict over the power of judges. That conflict drives every aspect of the appointment process, from the president's nominations to the Judiciary Committee hearing to the Senate's final vote. This conflict involves two radically different views of what judges are supposed to do in our system of government. In one view, advocated by America's founders, judges have a limited role defined by the process or the method that judges follow to interpret and apply the law to decide cases. The parties and issues really do not matter because judges must approach each case the same way, by interpreting and applying the law impartially. For impartial judges, a legitimate process ratifies the result. In the other view, which was invented to challenge the founders, uh, America's founders, judges have a virtually unlimited role defined by the results that judges deliver. For political judges, the parties and issues do matter a great deal, and these judges may use different approaches in different cases, cognizant of the political interests that their decisions might advance. For political judges, the ends justify the means. The heart of the appointment process is the conflict over whether America needs impartial or political judges. All of the debates, commentary, punditry, Twitterizing, if that wasn't a word, I just made it up, (laughs) and the Judiciary Committee hearing itself can be sorted out by the kind of judge being advocated. Shortly before the 2005 hearing for Chief Justice John Roberts, for example, Senator Ted Kennedy appeared on NBC's Today Show. The real issue involving the Roberts nomination, he said, was this, quote, whose side is Judge Roberts really on? The side of the major corporate interests or the consumer's interests? Will he be on the side of workers or on the side of the bosses? We need to know, Kennedy said, at an aid of FLCIO rally, whether Roberts will stand with workers and average Americans or with corporations, HMOs, and polluters. We need to know, Kennedy said, whose side he's on. In Ted Kennedy's America... Judges take sides before they enter the courtroom, before they know the facts of a case. Those who favor political judges want judges who will advance certain interests, agendas, and goals. There is not a whisper of difference between Senator Kennedy's whose side are you on in 2005 and Senator Schumer's demand for affirmative commitments today. These, as my mother used to say, amount to six of one and half a dozen of the other. The conflict over judicial appointments is not really over particular nominees, but over what all judges are supposed to do. It is not over uh, really a conflict over a specific issue, but over how judges are supposed to approach all of their cases. It is a conflict over the judicial job description. 
Now, all judges take the same oath of judicial office. The difference between impartial and political judges, however, is which constitution they are really pledging to support and defend. The impartial judge believes there really is such a thing as the Constitution of the United States. He did not draft it, he cannot change it, he cannot control it, but he must be bound by it. Political judges believe in their Constitution, or the latest Constitution, or the Constitution they would have written. That is the Constitution that they are pledging to support and defend. The most important contribution we can make to our fellow citizens in the coming weeks is to engage in this debate over what judges are supposed to do. This is, after all, essentially a hiring process for to fill a job opening. Unfortunately, most Americans know very little about our system of government in general and about the courts in particular. According to one poll, 22% of Americans believe that the three branches of government are the Democrat, Republican, and Independent branches. Recent polls show that only one quarter of Americans can name the actual branches of government, while another third cannot name any branch at all. 12% believe that the Constitution protects the right to own a pet, while 10% of college graduates believe that Judge Judy is currently on the Supreme Court. Most people, however, can easily understand whether judges should make up their minds before a case even starts. You have to really go to law school to have that common sense idea messed up in your head. (laughs) Look for this clash between impartial and political judging at Judge Kavanaugh's hearing. I expect both Democratic and Republican senators, or I'm sorry, both Democratic senators and Judge Kavanaugh to follow the advice of his future colleague, Elena Kagan. Let me explain. In 1993, Kagan took a leave of absence from teaching at the University of Chicago Law School to assist the Judiciary Committee on the nomination of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. During her confirmation hearing, Ginsburg explained why she declined to discuss her personal views on issues that she might face on the Supreme Court. Here's what she said, quote, Judges in our system are bound to decide concrete cases, not abstract issues. A judge sworn to decide impartially can offer no forecasts, no hints, for that would show not only disregard for the specifics of the particular case, it would display disdain for the entire judicial process, unquote. Now, upon her return to teaching, Kagan reflected on her experience in a law journal article. Kagan was frustrated at Ginsburg's resistance because Kagan wrote the most important question about a Supreme Court nominee is, quote, the votes she would cast, unquote. Failing to determine how a nominee would vote and how they would influence Supreme Court decisions, Kagan wrote, reduces the hearing to a farce. If that is too results-oriented, she wrote, so be it. Now expect Judge Kavanaugh to follow the advice of a different Elena Kagan. I think you know where this is going. When she herself was a Supreme Court nominee, Kagan not only refused to say how she would vote on issues, but also declined to answer questions that she described as, quote, a little bit more veiled than that, but that are still getting at the same thing, unquote. Kagan now said that it would be inappropriate to, quote, provide some kind of hints, unquote, about how she would vote in the future. Sounds a lot like Justice Ginsburg. The fact-checking service PolitiFact examined Kagan's new position and rated it a full flop. 
That's their worst rating, by the way. So in the Kavanaugh hearing, which Professor Kagan, watch Professor Kagan duke it out with Justice Kagan. By the way, while some use the label the Ginsburg rule for a nominee's resistance to disclosing such personal views, that standard was set nearly 60 years earlier. In fact, 97% of all Supreme Court nominees who were asked about those views during their hearing declined to discuss them. Nominees from Felix Frankfurter in 1939 to Neil Gorsuch in 2017 have taken the same position for the same reason. When a senator asks for a nominee's personal views on issues that could later come before him on the court or demands that a nominee make affirmative commitments on those issues, that senator is saying two things. First, he's saying that a a judge's personal views matter in his judging, that judges base their decisions on their personal views. Why else would he ask about those personal views? Second, the senator is trying to determine how the nominee will vote on certain issues. Remember what nominee Kagan said, asking about personal views is a little more veiled than demanding to know how a nominee will vote, but it's really about the same thing. By demanding not just forecasts or hints, but affirmative commitments, Senator Schumer is saying that the price of his confirmation support is that Judge Kavanaugh must display disdain for the entire judicial process. I am confident that will not happen. The Kavanaugh nomination is the latest to prevent, the latest opportunity to present this choice between impartial and political judges to the American people and to the senators they have elected. Listen to the ads, the statements, the arguments, and the questions in the weeks ahead. I guarantee they will reflect a preference for either impartial or political judges. That is the real issue in the judicial appointment process, whether America needs impartial or political judges. Let's hope the Senate makes the right choice. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to echo my predecessors. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for all for coming. This is a great event at a great place, and uh, I am honored to be here to speak to you guys. As Professor Arcus mentioned, until recently I was in the White House Counsel's Office, and amongst many, many other things, uh, one of my chief responsibilities was helping judges get confirmed, and in particular, helping Justice Gorsuch get through his confirmation process. I had clerked for Justice Gorsuch when he was on the Tenth Circuit, um, and so for me, it was a very special and very personal experience. It was something I'll never forget. It's something I'll cherish for my entire lifetime. And I thought that it might be useful to, to give you all in the audience and, and anyone who's watching at home, all 10 of them, including all of my siblings and parents, um, <laughs> what it is like to go through this from the White House perspective. And to some extent, I think I can offer views on what it's like for the nominee to go through it because it really is a life-changing event, obviously, for the nominee. But, you know, speaking from personal experience, it was a life-changing event for me, and I think it was a life-changing event for many of the people who supported Justice Gorsuch through the process. It'll be true for those who are supporting Judge Kavanaugh through the process. So um, there's a number of phases that occur throughout the nomination process, and only a small handful of them are sort of visible to the public eye. And the first one, obviously, is the announcement of the nominee. Uh, President Trump announced both of his nominees in pretty much the same fashion in a large 
gathering in the East Room with much hoopla and anticipation. Um, and I think one of the one of the values of that, whatever the criticisms of it, one of the values of it is I think that it puts a spotlight on what a Supreme Court justice is supposed to be like, what Americans expect from their Supreme Court justices, and it gives both the president and the nominee an ability to sort of set forth their vision of what that means. The president spoke at length in both instances about his view on the Supreme Court and what judges should be like. And then in both cases, the nominees gave, you know, relatively long statements about what makes them who they are and how they view judging. So that is obviously a very visible element that's at the front end. And then obviously there's a very visible element at the back end that Tom talked about with the hearings that uh, at least for the first day or two are very uh, well watched by the public. You know, we were really excited when on day three we learned that it had dropped off even of C-SPAN 3, and so it was only on closed-circuit television within the Senate, and we thought this is great news because no one's watching anymore. Um, but in between, there are a number of steps that happen. And the first one that happens pretty quickly is somewhat visible, at least for the first day, is that the nominee meets with a number of senators. In Gorsuch's case, I think he met with roughly 75 senators, but it amounted to over 80 visits because we did follow-ups with a number of people. And uh, the nominee does that with a sort of small entourage at the beginning. It's a much larger entourage, but as it goes on, it becomes much smaller. And usually it's someone like myself who is a lawyer that is there to help support the nominee and get him through him or her through everything. Uh, there is a Sherpa, as they call the person who is usually a former senator who has experience either with the Judiciary Committee or is just someone that's, uh, that's well-liked within the Senate. For Gorsuch, that was Kelly Ayotte. And for Kavanaugh, it is Senator John Kyle. And, uh, and then usually there's someone from legislative affairs, and there might be a press person that goes along on most of these visits. The visits range from uh, small talk and pleasantries to heavily substantive discussions that can last over an hour where senators ask questions very much like the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee hearings where they say, tell me about this case or tell me about your views on this matter or that matter, and much in the same way that the nominee has to navigate the fraught ethical and um, and just sort of personal boundaries there. They, you know, He or she has to answer those questions in a, in a meaningful and respectful way without violating their ethical obligations not to opine on specific cases that may come before them. Uh, so the next phase sort of begins as that Senate phase, is, the meeting phase is happening, and that's the prep phase that is mostly internal at the White House and DOJ where lawyers from the White House and lawyers from the Office of Legal Policy and a number of other offices within DOJ start preparing materials for the nominee to read and study and then um, small little moot sessions. We People used to call them murder boards, which sounds really awful. We called them moots, I think maybe just because we were all appellate lawyers who were used to saying moots, but it also, I think, made Gorsuch feel a little bit better about what was going to happen to him. <laughs> um, and so we would do very short topic-specific moots throughout the process, uh, and we would sort of key the study materials for those moots as they were happening. The goal was to get the nominee up to speed on every area of the, of the law. With, with Gorsuch, and I'm sure with Kavanaugh, it's, there's not a whole lot of learning that has to happen. It's more recollection, and maybe in some specific areas where their judicial service might not have exposed them to certain areas, they, they do have to do a little bit of learning. And the group of people that's usually involved in this is mostly young lawyers who uh, might know the nominee from past experiences or are uh, tasked with the responsibility because of their position in the administration. 
While that is going on, another group of lawyers is putting together the Senate Judiciary Committee questionnaire, which is pretty grueling and asks essentially every person you've ever met with, every word you've ever written, every event like this that you've ever spoken at, all of the judges' opinions, all of their articles, um, and all of that stuff, and then also a separate document production, one that happens with the Judiciary Committee questionnaire, and then another one that happens in response to the Judiciary Committee's request for additional documents, particularly if in the case like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, the nominee has served in the administration in, in a past administration in some capacity. And that is sort of like, you know, what young lawyers do in civil discovery, where they, you know, go through review documents for privileges and produce them so that other people can can read them and go through them. Um, as that progresses and the hearings start to approach, the moot sessions become more intense, they become longer. And they're really all intended to get the nominee comfortable with the very sort of odd act of sitting in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, odd for this person to sit in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and answer hundreds of questions for, I think, probably 10 or 12 hours for two straight days. Um, and so that involves lots of questioning that typically uses past hearings or the meetings as a roadmap for the kind of questions the nominee will get. The administration, at least this administration, does not tell nominees how to answer any questions. Uh, you know, they are the witness. They are the nominee. They have to decide how they're going to do it. But obviously they need practice in working through how they're going to talk through the answers. Um, and then as as that approaches the hearing, there is a short period of rest and relaxation that we gave to Judge Gorsuch so that he could go out to Colorado and ski and ride his bike and see his family for a little bit. And I think that's essential for the nominee to, to really come into the hearing fresh. The hearing itself, from a lawyer's perspective, I say it's like the biggest piece of civil litigation, the biggest bet the company trial you're ever going to be involved in. Your client is your basically only witness, or at least your star witness. The jury is the Senate Judiciary Committee. Half of the jurors have already said they're going to vote against you, and it's on live television with all of the American public watching. Um, so it's, it's pretty intense. Um, when you go in, you want to feel like you have anticipated every single thing that will happen, kind of like going to trial. But you have to know that you can never possibly anticipate everything that's going to happen. Uh, and the example from Gorsuch was that the Supreme Court reversed him unanimously halfway through his first day of testimony. So that was obviously unexpected and unfortunate. And um, we learned about it. We had to, you know, we, we made a request for a break. Uh, and then we were able to brief him on the Supreme Court's decision, work up a response to it, and send him back out, and then start working the press and the other angles to make sure that we had an adequate response, that he wasn't blindsided by the fact that he was reversed by the Supreme Court while sitting in the hearing room. Um, the, you know, Obviously, the hearing unfolds. Everyone's seen these. I'm not going to belabor that part. The one part after the hearing that gets almost no attention but is pretty onerous is what they call the QFER process or the questions for the record, which are uh, essentially interrogatories that the Judiciary Committee members send to the nominee and expect a response on each question within, you know, like 24 hours or something ridiculous. The nominee has to go through all of them, obviously, and answer them honestly and be very careful about what he or she says because they can be used against them, but I don't know that anybody other than maybe one Senate staffer ever reads the responses. So it's an onerous process that's important, but it's um, it's after the hearing and, and usually gets very little attention. Then the, the next phase is basically the 11th hour attack phase, 
which is true of you know most nomination processes, not even Supreme Court processes, but there will be some level of uh, final opposition research dump that happens usually right before the Judiciary Committee vote. In Gorsuch's case, there was an allegation that he had plagiarized parts of his book, which we were able to fight back by having the five or, or ten scholars that reviewed his PhD say that it wasn't plagiarism. And I think even the woman that he allegedly plagiarized came out and said that it wasn't plagiarism. But it, it's obviously very frightening when you think you're about to have a Supreme Court justice confirmed and somebody says, oh, by the way, he plagiarized something 20 years ago. So that's tough. Um, and then the last part is the votes, where you have the Judiciary Committee vote and then the Senate floor vote. Um, the, you know, for, in the interest of time, I'll basically stop it there. I'm happy to answer any other questions, but I would uh, give just a few takeaways. The first is that for a nomination to appear uneventful, which is really the goal for everyone and, you know, for your friends and family to say, man, that must have been easy. It didn't seem like there were any hiccups. It requires an insane amount of work. Uh, I don't think that I saw my three-year-old daughter very much at all between the months of February and April of last year. I probably was with Gorsuch between 12 and 16 hours a day every day. I was probably at work for another two or three hours in addition to that almost every day. Uh, and it's very hard. And, and there were 50 or so other people who were keeping up the same schedule. It's, it takes a lot of dedication. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is that I do think that there is a, a public education value in the entire process, not just the hearing, not just the announcement, but to you know put a spotlight for three months or so on the question of what do Americans want out of their judges and justices. And you, you get everyday people asking you or asking each other, you know, what do we really want? And I think there's a really really big value in that. So um, at that, I'll leave it. I'm happy to answer questions along with everyone else. Thank you. Thank you. John's remarks about conscience recall to me that old bit of Jackie Mason doing an invitation of Nixon years ago, saying, if, you're, if you'd like to vote for me and your conscience tells you to vote for Mr. Kennedy... Well, let your conscience vote for Kennedy and you vote for him. It's kind of early, early dualism. Um, we're reminded by John Paul, too, that conscience could, should be directed to an objective set of truths, not simply subjectivized in anything people feel about. And that's part of our concern. Uh, but sometimes we have to make the appeal to things that are outside the Constitution. With the Beaumont-Yen case, you would think that what might have held Justice Kennedy back was the awareness of these the principle that runs us back as the, the revolution, that the safety of the American people cannot be put in the hands of officers, whether in Westminster or unelected judges, who bear no direct responsibility to the lives that are at stake. We thought that was one of the deepest principles. It's not in the text. We hoped that people would make that move. I want to ask our colleagues about, again, what cases could arise. I want to, I want to claim one minute here. Uh, because in the case we certainly is going to be uh, raised is uh, Roe versus Wade. A dear friend of mine, teaching as one of the premier law schools of the country, 20 years ago took a survey among 24 colleagues until only five could give a faintly accurate rendering of what was in Roe versus Wade. And most people don't understand that under Roe, that right extends beyond the pregnancy and it may kill the right to, to, to kill the child who survives. That's why we brought forth the Born Alive Infants Protection Act. We'd made a move about a year or so to restore the penalties that had been stripped from that act. And we thought it would take all of 
Congressman Nadler's arts to keep the Democrats from voting against it, but uh, President Obama threatened to veto it. He claimed that the attempt to preserve the life of the child who survived is incompatible, unconstitutional. It's incompatible with Roe versus Wade. And that liberated the Democrats to vote their, vote their true sentiments. 177 Democrats voted against the move to punish the man who killed the child born alive. And when it was brought back this January, 183 voted against it. Every Republican voted for the bill, joined by only five Democrats. So now if you take a look at it, if we take this seriously, the Democrats on the panel could be asked, do you take seriously the views of President Obama and the Democrats in the House that this right to abortion in Roe extends beyond the pregnancy and entails nothing less than the right to kill a child who survives, that would break out some dramatic news to the public. And it's curious as to why we don't even raise that question. But we're, we're, we're under some rules, don't, don't raise questions of that kind, you know. Uh, Felix Frankfurter, when he was out, was pressed by Senator McCarran. Do you share Harold Lasky's views in his book on Marxism. So lots of difficult books. Do you share his views? And Frankfurter said, did you read it, Senator? <laughs> I wonder, why can't our guys do things like that anymore? Why is it now inapt to sort of talk back and draw them out? But let me go back to, the, apart from that, do you see any of these cases, our notable cases you think may figure into this, the CFB case, the, um, the uh, Consumer Protection, Morrison versus Olson may come into play? What do, you, what do you see happening? Well, you're looking at me, so I'll answer first. I, I do think I have that, the clearest view of you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do think that the administrative law cases will probably play a very prominent role in these hearings. They certainly did with Justice Gorsuch, partly because he had written a number of decisions on Chevron deference and non-delegation doctrine and those sorts of issues. Judge Kavanaugh, by virtue of sitting on the D.C. Circuit, that is pretty much his daily bread, is administrative law cases. And I also think it's it's probably fair to say it's one of the cutting-edge areas of law uh, and a place where views can differ, but people can talk in a way that is somewhat less political and more methodological and focus on the separation of powers and the uh, power of the executive branch vis-a-vis Congress, vis-a-vis the courts. And so I actually think it's a good thing. I I think it's a really good um, conversation for the American people to hear and to hear in a very intelligent way. And to be completely fair to to the senators on the Judiciary Committee, a number of them are very sophisticated in this area, and they ask sophisticated questions on both sides of the aisle. <laughs> Maybe because they had great staffers. That's right. That's what we would like to talk about. We think that's really productive. What do you think the Democrats would most like to talk about during this, these hearings? Well, you know, obviously they always want to talk about um, Roe versus Wade and precedent, uh, and the precedent question is kind of a veiled version of the Roe question. You know, I think th- on that topic, there's such hearing precedent, meaning the amount of times the question's been asked and answered by nominees from both sides, it's much easier to slip out of that area. And I think most people in the public recognize that it's an inappropriate question to be asking of of a future justice and wouldn't want a justice to say at the hearing table, I'm going to vote this way or that way, because you can never predict how a case, specific case or controversy comes up. And so you can't really make those broad uh, proclamations. You know, we also saw in the Gorsuch hearings, we saw a lot of focus on things uh, that are not everyday topics for Americans, like Arbitration Act issues, consumer protection issues. Uh, obviously, the frozen trucker case took on 
a life of its own, which really we, you know, we viewed as sort of a case, administrative law case about how judges um, review administrative decisions. But you have to be ready for those sort of things. So they look, I think they look for the little guy, quote unquote, cases. And, you know, the opportunity that those present is for the nominee to say, look, I don't view cases as little guy versus big guy cases. I view them as legal cases, and I apply the law, and then to walk through how you, how that person has applied the law. In let let me draw you on one. You told a lovely story about um, Neil Gorsuch handling this this question about uh, arbitration. Mm-hmm. Just do a quick, quick uh, riff, riff on that one. Well, so he was asked a question by Senator then-Senator Franken about the Arbitration Act, and he talked through the issues, and he, I think, at one point said the Federal Arbitration Act of, and I have to confess, I don't remember the exact year, but it was either 1925 or 1924, I think. And Franken put his hand up and said, ah, but it was 1924, Your oh. Honor. And Gorsuch sort of and said, okay, and moved on. And then later in the hearing, Franken asked for a point of personal privilege to correct himself and announce that Gorsuch had actually gotten it right. And at that point, we thought, okay, this hearing is basically over. <laughs> okay. But any other reactions? John, John and... and um, I want to take up the, this um, propensity of senators to go after the Roe question by way of asking about stare decisis and precedent. Um, because the, the, the questions, um, are, it's quite clear that they don't mean stick with all the precedent, even the ones we don't like. If, right. if, if there was a hint that... Um, in the Heller versus D.C. case, which was a follow-on to the original District of Columbia versus Heller, that he thought Scalia was wrong and he would vote to overturn that precedent, they'd be perfectly fine with that. In fact, if you look over time, um, the left wing of the court overrules precedent at much higher rates than the right wing of the court. In fact, one of the the, 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 the the justice who ranks sixth all time in our history of overturning precedent was Thurgood Marshall, who, of course, built his career on overturning some rather ignominious, ignominious precedent from the Jim Crow era. But on his day of retirement in 1991, he issued one of the strongest defenses of starry decisis that ever came out. Case was Payne versus Tennessee. Majority overruled a couple of prior decisions and held that the admission of victim impact statements at the sentencing phase of a capital murder trial was not unconstitutional. You know, kind of straightforward stuff. Marshall said that this decision completely undermined the doctrine of stare decisis, to which he, number six all time of overruling prior cases, what he wanted now to adhere to to lock in three decades of rather activist judging from the Warren Court forward. This decision, he says, a clear signal that scores of established constitutional liberties were now ripe for reconsideration. Now, he didn't mean established in 1791 when they were written or in 1868 when they were kind of incorporated by the 14th Amendment. He meant established by him and his colleagues changing the rules. And, and, and so what they, what they want is that one-way ratchet where we get a precedent in and then that's sacrosanct and you can't take it. But if you get a precedent in that we don't like, we're going to continue to work until we take that out. And, and this goes back to the thing that Tom was talking about. Are we going to faithfully adhere to the Constitution and treat it as binding on us? Or are we going to use it simply as a stepping stone to manipulate to achieve political ends that we couldn't get through the political process? That's the two visions, the two paths of judging that we have before us. And I don't want 
the judges to answer those kind of questions, but I think it's incumbent upon the rest of us that commenting on what's going on at those hearings to expose what the fight is really about. Tom? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the the reason why focusing on the kind of judge that we need on the bench uh, is not only, I think, philosophically correct, it can also be politically very powerful. Uh, you don't You don't have the politics of a specific issue decide what's going on. Uh, it's not dependent upon issues. It's how a judge should, have, should approach all of his cases on any issue. Uh, the Supreme Court has decided over 5,000 cases since Roe versus Wade on every issue imaginable. I, I'd like to know how Justice Kavanaugh was going to approach all of them, not, not just uh, who he's going to have win in a certain case on this issue or that issue. That is a very misleading way of describing and uh, what judges do. And frankly, um, the polls that I cited are not the most hilarious ones in my files. I mean, believe it or not, people don't understand diddly about what the courts are supposed to do. And anything that we can do to help educate them, to give them a better understanding of that, uh, I think is a great contribution to our fellow citizens. And what judges are supposed to do is not uh, rule my way on my issue. That is not what they're there to do. So it, it is a great opportunity. That is the clash that's going to be going on. It's going on right now. It'll be what what defines the entire hearing, uh, which will last three or four days. Uh, and I, I, I agree with John. I mean, we, we can all contribute to that better understanding of the judiciary among our fellow citizens um, in, in, a, in a way that will really reap benefits, I think, for the long term. One last point. Uh, Justice Alito, in a conversation just a few weeks ago, had a point that reinforced your point, Tom. He was mentioning these, some of these judges running wild on the Ninth Circuit and other places, denying the clear authority of the president to bar, for his discretion, to bar uh, aliens from entering the country, and, and he, he remarked that, you know, we may quash one or two, but some of these people just are just going, through, going at it. We can't possibly reach all of them. So it makes a profound difference if people have, as Plato would say, that little constitutional ruler within themselves. Right. Okay, let's, let's open up to questions from the audience. We have someone around with a um, mic. Oh. In light of everything that everybody on the panel has been saying about how this process should work, why don't the Republican senators, particularly those on the Judiciary Committee, start making the kinds of statements in public that have been made here by everybody on the panel, and why aren't they attacking particularly Senator Schumer for advocating what is clearly an illegal and unethical standard of you will vote the way I want and promise that you will, or you're not fit to be on the court? I have yet to hear anybody in any television show or anywhere else attack Senator Schumer or anybody else for making precisely those kinds of statements. Tom, you can um, do that one. I, of course, we're only two weeks into this. I, I, I was amazed at, you know, within about 24 hours getting calls like, you know, why aren't they doing this and that and the other thing? And I'm like, you know, they barely know who the nominee is. But um, I, I think that my observation... Um, was that the left and the right, Democrats, Republicans, roughly, um, 
look at and have a very different relationship with the judiciary. The, the left is primed to fight and defend the judiciary that they want because they get their stuff from the judiciary. And so uh, the, the right, conservatives, Republicans, have an indirect relationship with the judiciary. They want a judiciary that will just let them get their stuff from their elected officials, from you know communities, all this other kind of stuff. It's a completely different way of thinking about the judiciary. And so... Um, it's not exactly two ships passing in the night, but um, I'm not. I don't want to make excuses for anybody not engaging, you know, in the battle, so to speak. But Republicans have a, a very different relationship, a very different idea about the judiciary, which I think really affects how uh, they're able to engage in that debate. Um, Senator Schumer, in his view, that. Judicial nominees have to make affirmative commitments, can be and, and must be challenged in a whole host of ways, not only by his fellow senators. By, by the way, I think if Judge Kavanaugh were to answer those questions, then Schumer would immediately come out and say he's disqualified because not adding judicial. See, the, the point is to trap him so that no matter what he does, they can oppose him. Because in his career thus far on the D.C. Circuit, he has manifested a commitment to following the governing precedent that binds him as well as the constitution and statutory text that equally bind him. And that's something that's just not permissible in their view of what the role of the judge is. And so the, the, the goal by Schumer is to take him out however he can and put somebody in who thinks the view is to mold the constitution to achieve the political ends that they couldn't possibly get through the political process. But picking on this gentleman's... Why is it that, why do you think, there's some inhibitions at work, obviously. Why is it good that Ted Cruz or Mike Lee, who understand this stuff, could not raise the kind of challenge some of their Democratic colleagues on the panel to say, do you, do you really hold with, with Obama? Because you're asking the, these people to give their obeisance to Roe versus Wade, and it's not even clear how you understand that case. Could we sort of not challenge them to say, do you stand with Obama and the Democrats in the House, split the party, invite a civil war within the party? Because they can't, they can't take that, Heidi Heitkamp can't, can't take that position back to North, to North Dakota. What stands in the way of their doing this? Is there a convention well, about criticizing nothing, your colleagues or not, nothing, what? Nothing stands in the way of them doing it, and, and there's going to be, that's going to be done. I mean, at the hearing. Really? My, my own view, though, is I, I, think, I think sometimes we can put, we can ask the process and the hearing in particular to, to um, hold up more weight than it should. We, we, we want the hearing to accomplish, you know, these great goals and transform, you know, the country and everybody's going to have a different view walking out about, you know, the Constitution. There, there's, there's good ideas. We've discussed some of them here about how it, how it ought to be done. But the confirmation hearing is a job interview. And it's about whether that individual gets the job. And that's all it's about. Um, this is, this is a battle that has to be engaged in on multiple fronts forever. You know, the, the, the idea of vigilance is the price of liberty, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so we can, we can sometimes expect a, or de demand too much from a four-day hearing which um, uh, exists and really operates as part of a process for one specific purpose – and I don't, I don't know that that purpose is as broad as, you know, changing the abortion culture and all of that kind of stuff. 
uh, it's, it's, I think, I think it's more specific and in focus than that. Some other questions? I think the microphone is at hand. I'm um, curious about how uh, the national, the NDAA, uh, National Defense Authorization Act that uh, President Obama signed at midnight on 2012 and has repeatedly been passed through the defense budget. Why is that um, uh, never discussed in public? I've heard it once when Rubio attacked Cruz in the first Republican debate in that brilliant monologue. Uh, you know, eight, these are the eight things you didn't do. And ended with, you voted against the NDA. And Cruz said, yes, because... It overrules habeas corpus, which it, it also overrules the way I read it and people that, you know, read it. Why, why isn't that provision of the NDAA talked about more in publicly? Yes. I've never heard it. I'm not even sure what provision you're referring to. It, it's... Um, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure which provision you're referring to. It was actually written here at, Her at Heritage. I'm, I was actually written here at Heritage. So, um, it, well, it's three pages. It's, um, I think it's on page 500 in the defense budget. And it means a great deal to me if... I could leave you my business card because I'm fascinated by it. But I have never heard it discussed in public except in that one exchange between Rubio and Cruz. And a lot of extremely brilliant uh, lawyers, uh, theorists such as yourselves, aren't aware of it. Uh, but basically, at a point in time, if the president declares a national security issue, those three pages, the way they've been explained to me, um, uh, overrule a Bill of Rights Constitution in habeas corpus. It, well, well let, me, it, let, me, let me address it, and so we can get back to the confirmation hearing discussion. Just quickly, the, the Constitution authorizes Congress to suspend the writ in times of national emergency. And if that's what the provisions do, then it's not anything that isn't already authorized by the Constitution. Um, but let's get back to the confirmation hearing discussion. I think we have time for just one more question. Well, well, he, he's trying to get this young man over here. He's trying to get it. So um, I wanted to ask about what to me was one of the most memorable questions and answers in the confirmation hearings, and that was the question to Robert Bork about what is the meaning of the Ninth Amendment, and he kind of referenced inkblot and stuff, and that to me seems like the kind of question we would want are to be asked of the judges, of what do you think the Constitution means? And we actually got an answer from him, at least, um, as he was giving, oh, do you think those are the kind of questions that uh, Republicans and other senators should ask? He gave the wrong answer, but that's a different <laughs> <laughs> it's not an inkblot. It, it ties into a much deeper philosophical foundation for the Constitution. And look, uh, there is a decision from Judge Kavanaugh that I think um, addresses that kind of thing. Remember in the early Obamacare case, 
he said that we didn't have any jurisdiction to consider this because even though they call it a penalty, it's effectively a tax, and we're barred of having jurisdiction under the Anti-Injunction Act. Right now, I think he was wrong about that, but he, you know, one presumes that he was as opposed to Obamacare as p- people on his of, of his political ilk are. But he thought the law compelled him to reach that decision. Now, having done that. The next case comes up and said, okay, not only did I find it was a tax, but the Supreme Court has subsequently found it was a tax. So we've got a whole new set of issues. If it's a tax, it had to originate in the House of Representatives. Everybody knows this thing originated in the Senate. They stripped out a House bill. All right. The Senate has the power to amend bills that originate in the House, but it doesn't have the power to substitute for bills that it. Now, I would have thought, particularly if I'm looking at the underlying theory of why we have the origination clause, Focusing on the text that says amend, not substitute, that that was an unconstitutional act by the Senate to impose Obamacare on a bill that didn't originate in the House of Representatives. I would have liked to have seen that deeper reflection of the Constitution's understanding uh, than was manifest there. But but he did think that it was clear and that he was compelled by the Constitution to rule that way. And I at least have to give him credit for following what he thought the law was, even if I think he was wrong about it, um, uh, because he thought it was binding on him, which is what we want in a judge. But so I think, I think, though, too, for example, Brett Kavanaugh has been nominated to be a judge. He hasn't applied to be a law professor. He hasn't, you know, d- different, different, or the s- similar issues can be brought up in different contexts for very different purposes. And in in my view, um, a judge discuss, especially a sitting judge. Remember, he has already taken an oath to, uh, you know, uh, address issues impartially and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a, a judge a prospective judge or a sitting judge who is talking under oath about his personal views on an issue and and the the Constitution and or Supreme Court precedent would be in the the law, the category of the law that would be used in future cases, for him to be talking about that under oath uh, is inappropriate. I mean, go, go go to a seminar, go to a you know other things. If you're just going to talk abstractly, remember, I think Ginsburg was right when she said judges decide cases; they don't address abstract issues, and that has to guide um, the way this process works. I, I I have no problem with a judge who is uh, guarding his impartiality to the degree that he says, "I'm not going to tell you my personal views on." Uh, issues or precedents or that are that I'm going to have to use in actual cases with actual parties. I don't have any problem with that. Remind me, though, of this, this moment in the hearings with John Roberts when Ted Kennedy was trying to draw him out on disparate impact to make the case that if, if disparate effects can give us a finding of discrimination even if there was no intent. And he said, well, they did Brown versus Board. Weren't they looking at disparate impact? The temptation then would be to say, well, Senator... There was no evidence taken about the effects of racial discrimination on the performance of those children in Topeka or anywhere else. And of course, no one wants to say a critical word about Brown. If you raise the other question, then forgive us. You're doing something about jurisprudence. And we've got to be careful before we do anything like that in a public hearing. Listen, I want to thank the panel. I think uh, There's an old that, the, the, the comment of a common law judge. I don't know whether through these comments... I've settled the case or unsettled it, but I hope we put it in a condition where a mind better than ours may yet settle it. Thanks so much to the panel.